today, ladies and gentlemen, um, we have a very special interview with Jeff Marsland, who is a well-known Wellingtonian, who is known as our coffee baron through his company Havana Coffee, who has just hit a monumental 25 years of business, and they are about to launch a book to celebrate this. So a few weeks back, we managed to have a rare chat with Mr. Jeffrey Marsland, one of the partners behind Havana, and we got to have a little insight into their crazy journey to making Wellington the coffee culture capital of the country. Enjoy. Jeff, you have just been sailing. Where have you been? Where have I been sailing? I've just been sailing. I sailed the boat we've got as we kept in Trinidad Tobago last year. Wow. So we sailed up right off Trinidad Tobago's really pirate infested waters of Venezuela. So when I talk about pirate infested, like you, you guys probably know, everyone probably knows about the Somalia pirates out of container yeah. ships and that. But off Venezuela, the coast of Venezuela, and also on, on Venezuela, because one of the dodgiest places I've been, Caracas. But just off Venezuela, there's um, a lot of fishermen and, and, and sort of, they call it, they're, they're called pirates. But they're just small-time pirates, meaning they might come alongside with like four or five guys and a few AK-47s and stuff. Yep. They just come along. They pick a, a yacht that's by itself. And they come. They're normally on a boat going faster than you. They can come alongside, pull guns on you, jump on the boat, just cut all your um, microphones and communication set phones and cell phones and stuff. And all they're looking for is iPads, money, alcohol, whatever you've got. They're just a small time. Yeah. You know, but on a, on a, so there's on a boat of our, there's, so there's five of us on our boat and it's a sixty foot boat. So there's quite a lot of gear to get once they get everyone's personal gear and cash and everything. Yeah. So the, the idea is that you're supposed to go on a Convoy of boats, so that right. if there's two or three yachts a mile or 500 metres apart or something, they can't take all the boats at once. So, because the whole idea is that they operate on jumping on the boat, chopping your microphones, holding a gun to you, and then just ramsacking and taking off. So it takes a while for you to get hold of someone. But if there's three or four boats, as you come alongside one, then the other yachts can see. So they can't get away because you can radio for help or something. Right. And then get a chopper out straight away. But so we were travelling by ourselves and we were travelling fast. So you weren't in a convoy. No, we weren't in a convoy. We were, we were on a we were on a mission. Why on a did mission. you want to go there? We, we, no, we were because we were going somewhere anyway, and there was no other yachts leaving at the same time as us. Okay. So our idea was we'd shoot out from Trinidad Tobago, head about eighty or ninety miles north. Uh, which is about so on an average boat the sort of boats the pirates have it's a, probably about 10 hours out so it's a long way for them to get out and get back yeah. so we, we took off we took I went 80 miles north and then we went across the top of Venezuela to Curacao was, we had a few boats come towards us and a little bit dodgy but we were, we were sweet and then we hung out in Curacao and then we went down the Colombian coast to Cartagena which was beautiful around the San Blas Islands through the Panama Canal and out to Galapagos. Sailing's always been important to you, Jeff, and you did come from a fishing background. Why? Why is? What is it about sailing that that just still keeps you excited, or, or you want to do it? Um, well, I'm a cancer, so I'm a bit crabby. Right, you're a bit. But crabby. I've, I, I always, I've got. I know, ever since a kid, I lived next to the ocean. Yeah. Since I was, you know, since I was about eight or nine, I had kayaks and then dinghies and then. And sort of sailing boats, and then ran got suspended from school at fourteen. Ran away to sea. Got, got suspended from school at fourteen. And then the next day, got kicked out of home because of my hair. I had got I shaved all my hair off, so got kicked out of home the next day. So then, so that sort of night, I was like kicked out of school, kicked out of home, left 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 uh, home with a pillowcase full of my stuff at ten o'clock at night. I was riding along the wharves, Queen's Wharf, and um. <laughs> 
about midnight or something. This guy says, oh, "What are you doing?" And I said, oh, "I'm just being kicked out of home." He goes, "Oh, I'm leaving at midnight. I'm going to the Cook Strait. If you want to, if you want to come," he said, "I've got it. If you like it, I'll, I'll give you a job and you can live on the boat." So, I put my fish, fishing net under the under the under the put my boat under the fishing net. My bike and sorry, my bike <laughs> under the fishing net. Jumped on the boat, went out Cook Strait, and and be, and I went fishing. So yeah, loved it. Lived on the boat, never went home. Went 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 fishing, and ended up getting like one of the top jobs on the top boats in Wellington. Not because of my skills as a fisherman, just because I was like the entertainment officer on the boat, <laughs> and um, and, and and did really well. Made quite a lot of money. You know, it was successful at that. that. But then got really sick of it. Like right. just got just got after. So that, so I fished from about. It's 14 to 19 or something and I, I did really well financially but yeah. just started hating at the people that were in it and actually going to sea I started actually hating it when the boat was leaving the harbour I just had this mm. feeling that I don't want to be going to sea for so I left that and it was smelly and you know, everyone said I smelt like fish and all that sort of stuff anyway, so <laughs> I started making my own clothes doing yeah. tie-dye and making clothes so I went from fishing to fashion and where were you selling those? Started. We had a shop in Arrow Street called What Shop, right? Yeah. In Arrow Street, there was a few of us doing it, and there was we all just like did different things like bone carving and tie dye and things like that. And then I went. We went to the Wellington Markets, and then I went. I just decided I wanted to go offshore with it, so I went to made a whole lot of clothes and went to put them in a in a big case and and went to London and set up a stall at Camden Town Markets wow. in London. And then I had I had a whole lots of girls that wear the clothes and everything when I was. Back, uh, back in Wellington and sort of made some sort of catalogues and then went to Europe and told people I was a famous fashion designer from New Zealand and my name was Zephari, which means God of idle gossip in Greek. And uh, marketed my clothes as nuclear-free clothing. Nice, and, and, uh, which, did, we, which we were yeah, yeah, at yeah. the time, yeah. Yeah, now my kid's telling me nuclear is the way to go. But anyway, <laughs> so um, we argue no, about it quite a lot no. at home. <laughs> they, they've got quite a good argument at the moment. <laughs> they reckon we can power the house on the size of a matchbox and there'll only be that much waste as well. <laughs> but anyway, so... Um, so that went really well, and then so I, do, I used to do the clothing, and then I'd bring back a fancy car. So I'd take all my clothes to uh, London, do the Camden markets, then do a bit of Europe. But I'd buy a fancy car like a say, like a Merc or a Porsche or something. In those days, you had to own it six months either side because there's no fancy cars. So I'd buy the car, drive it around, take it to Glastonbury Festival or something normally like that, and put a big tent over it. Yeah, and then. And so, we, so when you were, everyone else had mud, we sort of had air conditioning and music. Anyway, so th- th- then uh, came back to New Zealand, carried on, and I heard about the Grateful Dead. Everyone said, "Oh, the Grateful Dead, they'd love this." I actually heard about them in Europe. So we did a found out where the Grateful Dead were going to be, and me and another one, Melissa McIntyre, did tie dye as well. We flew to America, flew to LA, and brought a big station wagon and found where the Grateful Dead were, and did a season with the Grateful Dead, selling tie dye. Yeah, it was it was about I think it was about six shows or something. And it was uh, we're on the west coast. So it was what was amazing about it was that we the car we made this bamboo shop uh, rack clothing rack. So the car unfolded into a big clothing rack, and we slept in the car. It was like a about a nineteen foot Ford LET, LTD. I think it had about a four hundred and sixty cubic motor or something. It was an amazing travelling show. But anyway, what was amazing? There was about thirty tie dye stalls that travelled from show to show with a grateful dip, and our tie dye was like none of the other tie dye. It was totally different. What was different? Uh, well, we had a trick, which I don't really want to talk about the trick because yeah. my kids are doing a bit of tie dye now. <laughs> but uh, but we did this thing where we yeah we did a lot of people they tie their they tie their tie dye you know they do yeah. their tie dye and they dip it. Well, we dyed and then we tied it and then we took the dye out. So that was our trick about how I tell it I look so different I've just, I've just said it now yeah you've said it anyway uh, yeah but um 
So uh, that was amazing, tra- traveling on the Grateful Dead. Just the whole, it was like that thing. America felt like that you'd go from you'd go to Eugene, Eugene Origin, or or San Diego, wherever you were. It's like the 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 Grateful Dead Roadshow would come into into the city and all these teenagers, you know, 18, 19, you know, these Americans would come, they'd buy a tie-dye T-shirt, they'd take an acid trip and they'd go to the Grateful Dead. It was like the trade fair. It was amazing to see and everyone just turned a blind eye for this this one concert. Where they, it was like a rite of passage, like going to a Deadhead right. concert. It was amazing. So it was a really amazing experience in itself. Yeah, yeah. There's a book just there. <laughs> so how did you go from fishing to fashion to coffee? Well, I didn't want to smell like fish anymore. No, so then, so that, so once after the Grateful Dead, after the Deadhead tour, that's when we caught up with um, Tim and Helen. So that right, Tim rose my business. They, over there? they were over there in Canada, and uh, Tim was boat building, and Helen was hanging out, and, right. they were, and they were sort of getting on it up there. And they said they come up to Canada. It was the end of the season because I think the last Deadhead show was the last Grateful Dead show I think was might have been in Seattle or somewhere it was close anyway so we went up there and hung out and that's when we discovered the whole coffee thing right and we and we Tim said oh check out this place so we went down there and we, and we realised then that, that we wanted to do it we just sort of loosely t- spoke about that and um, so we went and bought a coffee machine in Vancouver right in the, in the industrial area of Vancouver we shipped it back to Wellington and I flew back and he flew back separately. We've back, been back a couple of months and I was going to go back, either do some more, I think I was doing a bit more tie-dye and living in my house truck. And I was thinking about going back fishing because I wanted to earn some more money. And Tim came back and he, he was going to—he was about to have his first child. And they the, he, he rang me up and said, oh, the coffee machine's here, let's go and get it. So we jumped in the combi van and went out to Seaview where we've actually now owned a coffee factory as well. Yeah. And um, coincidentally... And uh, picked up the coffee machine, took it back and put it in a, you know, put it in, plumbed it up to the kitchen, ho- the garden hose and everything and stood around and said, and we rang up a few coffee supplies. There wasn't many then. It was, I no. think it was like Bellaroma, Tea and Coffee World and Fags. And so we got all the coffee from all of them and said, we're going to do it. No one really wanted to take any notice of us or offer us any coffee or anything. So we, there was no one doing coffee, you know, it was like, it was like the Kona Bowl, well, like the filter a, coffee. Yeah, yeah. What, what was the coffee culture in Wellington? It was like time? the Muffin Cafe or there was one, the one fancy cafe in Wellington probably that was, would have been Bellaroma and Woodward Street. Right. Which, but that was like classical music, China cups, you know, like tea and lots of sort of Kelvin ladies and stuff like that. So... There, were, there was no coffee culture in Wellington, and, the, and all, the, all the coffee shops just had tea and coffee. They had an old Kona stewing in the yeah, corner. Yeah. So, um, so that so we told people we were going to open a cafe, and 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 that sort of started. Really, it was like people thought we were mad. Ha! Do you laugh at them now? <laughs> no, I think they were right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me add one thing. Yeah. So the nicest thing has been instead of people going, "Ooh, you smell like fish," people go, "Yum, you smell like coffee." <laughs> So consequently, you've stayed in it for 25 years. Tell me about Midnight Espresso when it opened. So what was Wellington, what was the nightlife like in Wellington? Well, just like I said, it was just nightclubs. There was no nightlife. There was no, there was no weekends. So the weekends, like now, you know, look at, look around now, the weekends is like busy. You can't get a park. Mm. It's the busiest. I mean, there's a, there's heaps of traffic in the tunnel on the weekends now like, to come into town, so it's a totally different place. So there was no weekend trade, no, no, no brunch trade, no cafes to go to. There was just there was just basically pubs and nightclubs, really, and no, 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 not no a, hangout kind. Not really. Of I can't remember place. any hangouts back then. It was a, yeah, because we'd always hang out at these other houses. And then you'd, you'd go to Claire's nightclub was the sort of hangout, you know, that, and ex-checkers. Yeah. But so when so when we opened midnight, it was. 
so we opened, we called it Midnight Espresso, Havana Midnight Espresso, because it was in the middle of Cuba Street. And we opened, basically we wanted somewhere you could go to the, you know, till late at night. So that was the whole, so on the weekends we actually didn't even open till six, because there was no weekend trade. So we wow. opened, <laughs> we used to open from nine in the morning till 3am. I think the hours now are 7am till 3am. We, we, we did try 24 hours for a bit, but it was in the area when you really wanted to, you had to shut the door and start a new day, otherwise people would have just lived there. Yeah. It was, it was probably about, Five years later, there was a day trade. Then right. we started opening for brunch. Now, right over the you know around the world and around New Zealand and around Wellington, the, the brunch is the busiest you know busiest days for the cafe. Anyway, now Saturdays and your your busiest days. Yeah. So, what were you doing at midnight? Because it was more than a place to go. What energy or what culture were you building there that just really created a real? Steam? Everyone, everyone was welcome. Right. There was no. We didn't care how you smelt, what you looked like, <laughs> if you had any money. It was like everyone, basically everyone was welcome. Yeah, everyone was welcome. We gave everyone the time of day. You know, I mean, we didn't take any shit and we didn't give much stuff but away. you also gave people a hard time as well. Yeah. So, you know, well, it was so fairness. busy. It was so bu- Well, it was so busy. It was so busy. Um, that you know that p- there was always people waiting to get there, so you could actually go and like you know tell people. Like I used to be the first person to wake someone up if someone was yeah. fell asleep. What are you doing? <laughs> My coffee not working. <laughs> but um, I think we we well we started open with a bang. I mean, I think what I think we were just I think it was a whole lot of people that were waiting for what we created. Do you know what I mean? They were they were just so when it, like when it opened, so we had the opening party, which was huge. Like, it was like just massive, and then we opened. I think the next day or something. And it only took about two or three days to the, it was just massive busy all the time. And what what was what was amazing too the whole time I ran it, and I still go there all the time. I go there there every day, yeah. still for breakfast. I have a juice and a fruit salad for breakfast, so I go there most mornings. And I still see people every day that I've never seen before. Right, and that was in the ten years I was working there. Plus, you know, the still going there now. Yeah. So it's so I think. And now I'm hearing that you know, like some, you know, that my kids. Mates in that hang out there, and I, so, so it's like they're into their fourth generation or something now. Eh? It's crazy, but I think I think it was just it was just very real. So when Midnight first opened, it was only half the size that it is now. We lengthened it and we doubled the size of it in '94. Wow! But when it was really small, I mean, people used to sit and smoke in there, like and, yeah. and like. So it was we're supposed to having healthy vegetarian food and everything, or basically vegetarian, and then sit, so you'd sit there and there'd be full of cigarette smoke. I mean, it's just hard to imagine even now, eh? Isn't that, it? I think one of, one of the most funny bits in the early days was when we, uh, we've always had a problem with the council and the parking, you know, like, so when, with council, like, so we were the first, Midnight was the first one to have an open window, and so, but there was, we wanted to have somewhere outside you could sort of sit. So we tried to put tables on the footpath. They said no tables on the footpath. So then we got a car and we converted. They hadn't been to Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The we converted this car. We bought a car, an old Singer Gazelle. It was actually my car when we opened the cafe, but I bought a Volkswagen. <laughs> we cut the roof off and we put a table on the car. We used hubcap six. Now, do you remember that? And we had an umbrella on it. And we so we had all of a sudden we had a table outside you could sit at. So the window opened, there was a table outside. But the council hated this because you only had to park on the parking meter for two hours. Right. Yeah. So we had to have two cars and we had to keep moving them backwards and forwards the whole time. You know, to, so it was a bloody, it was like a, a, a Benny so that was the first that was sort of pushing the boundaries for Wellington for the tables on the footpath right and then there was the one another this is a deluxe row one day I went down there was like summer because we used to have the old combi van we were roasting coffee we roasted coffee on the roof at this stage but we used to have the girls down at deluxe in the midnight period we'd we'd leave midnight with the coffee and then shopping go down to deluxe get the money drop off the shopping all that sort of stuff and we'd do this a couple of times a day 
Anyway, I was, when we were down there one day, there was these two girls in that work, and it was like a hot, hot day, and it was and there was all full of customers. I drove out, parked on the combi on the on the footpath, and I jumped out. And we walked in, I'm unloading the shop in there, and they're looking at me going, it's so hot in here, we can't work, it's so hot. And I said, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? There's a fan, there's a door, like, it's hot. I mean, well, it doesn't get that hot. So, they, so I could see their frustration. So I picked up a big tin of tomatoes, and I just threw it through the window, and the window just smashed and all over the thing, because I was trying to let more air in, right? Anyway, the girls, the, the customers all got up and left in, in shock. I'm quickly with a dustpan and brush, cleaning the glass up. The girls are looking, oh, my God, Jeff's lost it. So anyway, I said, I'll be back, I'll be back. So I went away. I went got a, got a tape measure. Came back. Came back about nine o'clock that night with an aluminium window and a frame, and it just fits in and clicks in and out. So that was twenty something years ago. It's the same window that opens and closes now. It's the same window. window. So it's, that's how that's how that's how uh, how Deluxe got its opening window. <laughs> so just talking about timing, it is amazing that you were the one there at that time in New Zealand with that idea. You and Tim. Is there, a, is there a reason for that, do you think, or do you think it was lucky or fortuitous, or how do you describe that, even for yourself? I think, like I said before, just wanting something and realising there was a whole lot of other people that wanted it as well. Yeah. But I didn't answer your question, but before you asked about how it spawned and became a nationwide thing, we had a, a office on the top of midnight, right? and we started roasting our coffee. We had a home-built roast that Tim had built, and it was all made out of like a couple of sparkle blowers and a Kobe exhaust and a, I'm not even joking he's industrious that yeah. isn't he and a, and a sort of an old rubbish tin that had the yeah. trod bottom chopped off anyway we started roasting coffee we knew nothing about what we were doing but we just were roasting coffee and using it in, in, in midnight and deluxe and we had and some of our customers I think we, it was one of those things that if Jeff and Tim can do it anyone can do it so um, lots of our well, quite a few of our cafe customers moved into Whanganui or Auckland or Napier or Nelson and they opened a cafe like ours because you know because like, so we were right we were lucky that so in the very early 90s 92, 93 at the same see Lafari opened in 1990 right I think I can't remember the leader. I think the leader opened around then as well, ninety one or something. Anyway, but so lots of people went round to different places, provincial areas, and opened like a cafe, which was in the same similar, which was the, their own design that was organic. It was what they could score, what they could afford, and they they got Havana coffee. So f- that was how we sort of grew nationwide quite yeah. quick. And then I had a vision of the, the whole thing with a so then I saw this happening and started travelling around New Zealand to look after our cafes. So I'd be like, in the early days when we had no money, we, we sort of had money but not a lot of money, um, as we were, I'd, I'd travel around in the combi van and I'd sleep in the back and I'd jump out and, and like the next morning I'd jump out and like make out I'd just come from my hotel or something. <laughs> and I'd go and and try and sell my coffee to different cafes. So we, so we, we were very quick, right, yeah. we very quickly became a nationwide company. Like we, we always had plans on being nationwide, like to, you know, to, so we could actually have a bigger brand and a bigger company. So we were, that's how we sort of grew that. We'd, we, we had lots of cafes opening around and then we'd go around and I'd be selling the cafe. I'd be like, we'd be t- telling people, get an espresso machine. You know, we'll take the Kona machine out. Right. Ironically, 25 years later now, we're putting Kona machines back <laughs> yeah, in. That is I wish I'd kept them all in a garage somewhere. <laughs> you were really also early to pull that, that Latin American or the Cuba feel and flavour into what you were doing. That was a first as well. So it wasn't only just coffee. It was a style that was ahead of its time. How successful do you think this has made Havana coffee as well? 
It's an interesting one, that one. I mean, I've found out, I've only found, I'm adopted, so I've only, I've only found out in the last couple of years I'm actually Italian. So uh, that was quite ironic, too, to find that out later on. Tim's a Dutch Jew. So, well. but, so there is a bit of European Italian. in there with us. Yeah, I know, I know, the Italian stallion, eh? Uh, that's what my Maybe. French wife calls me. <laughs> uh, but so, but the, uh, the, well, I think, what, so what, when we, me, me, me and Tim started, like we, we wanted, Tim wanted to call it, the first cafe, Havana Coffee Lounge. So it was 1989. So he, Havana, like the capital of Cuba. So we're in the middle of Cuba Street, right? So I said to Tim, in 1989, no one's going to know Havana Coffee no. Lounge. They're not going to know what it is. It's not going to mean anything. It's, the, it's not going to be anything. I said, and I said, I want to say what it is, like late night coffee, right? So we called it Havana Midnight Deluxe. And then we called it Havana, sorry, Havana Midnight Espresso. And then we opened it, we called it Havana Deluxe. And then when we opened... Um, the the coffee started racing coffee we called it Havana Coffee Works yeah so w- being like because after naming a place like that and obviously you've got to take on that ilk of Havana Havana's fucked and run down and it's like it's the most amazing opulent city but it's got the most amazing it's got the most beautiful woman the most amazing music the most beautiful architecture beautiful cigars but they've got but they've got no fuel and no food and no so they've got the best of everything but everything's sort of fucked and crumbling down yeah. and that's what we me and Tim a little bit as well <laughs> it's sort of related to that sort of thing but what so we had to carry so we carried on with that with yeah. the Havana thing and I quite often I say because I own so owning Deluxe I quite often get asked about the Havana thing and I say well if, in hindsight I should have probably called it Deluxe Deluxe Coffee Roasters because like, if you look at Supreme Supreme is saying oh well Supreme it means subtly it means the best Supreme the best right, yeah. so they've got a lot I reckon they've grown their business a lot on their name quite a lot and also Peoples they've got, Peoples is a really clever name because Peoples it means that you can drive around in a Range Rover throw all your recycling into the rubbish tin and, and buy a bag of coffees from Peoples for five bucks and feel like you're saving the world so names are quite clever like that and, yeah. and Havana's definitely given us a sort of Given as a wonderful journey, but it's tied us into a certain ilk as well. Of the, we had to keep up with the old and the fucked and everything. So <laughs> but, it could be so, quite handy, though. It I could think. be quite handy. So to, Jeff, Jeff Kenner said, "Watch out! Don't judge Tim and Jeff by their womble hand-me-down outfits and, the, and old vehicles." He said they'll probably have beach houses in, in, uh, in Taupo with designer wetsuits behind the scenes. Yeah. But um, but so there, so there, I always has been on my mind if I what I, you know what if, if it had been deluxe what, what I would have got lots of beautiful emblems and lots of chrome and lots of, it could have been a different thing, mm. but the, it's definitely been a Havana journey like you know because it was it was about I think it was about 1995 that I wanted to go looking for coffee and I went to Jamaica thinking that I heard that Jamaica that you know had the best coffee in the world I went looking for Blue Blue Mountain Jamaica and got mugged straight away <laughs> my bags got lost from Miami to uh, Kingston and then I got mugged in the Main Street of Montego Bay or something got rolled into a car and then I was up, finally got up to the top of the Blue Mountains I'm standing there and realised I couldn't find any Blue Mountain coffee that I could afford but realised that Cuba was right next to Jamaica yeah. and that Cuba must grow coffee as well if it's right next door <laughs> so that's how we sort of got onto the Cuban the, you know the Cuban coffee which was obviously the next step for Havana yeah. that roasting in Cuba Street to actually to well, by then we were actually roasting in Wigan Street but to uh, actually that was the sort of the gave us the maestro strike really getting the Cuban coffee having the real thing yeah and it is it is one of the best coffees in the world as well so that's been really lucky for us as well yeah it's just another one of those fortuitous things the whole thing the whole thing amazing in life I just can't believe how you just get how the serendipity of how all little things and someone's like you know these little signs you get all the way that things are going right wow what a journey we're just going to take a break from hearing from Jeffrey Marsland from Havana Coffee Works, 
and his serendipitous journey um, and have a listen to Adada just for a minute. Don't go away. And we'll hear a bit more from Jeff about real trade and what's in the future. Get a glass of wine or a beer. Okay, I so love that song. We might get a little minute to play the rest of it later, but we're going to go back to hearing part two from Jeffrey Marsland's 25 Years of Havana. Tell me about real trade. What does that mean to you, and how did that come around? Um, real trade Real trade means it's in, it's in all, all aspects of the business. So real trade... So real trade, obviously, when you talk about real trade and fair trade, people think about the grower. People yep. go straight to their, their growing environment, and it is, and I will talk about that. But but real trade for me is a, it's an ethic right across. It's it's right across the board. Like it's how real trade is how you deal with the customer that yep. you're, that you they might have a cafe. How you deal with the customer that comes to buy a cup of coffee. It's about the experience they get. Like I say to my staff all the time. Treat people how you want to be treated. So when I do business, like a lot, a lot of my customers I've had for a long time, like 20 years, 15 years, and how I do business is I do business so there's something in it for everyone. That's yeah. real trade, meaning that it's not, I'm not here just to rip you off once or anything. I want to have a long relationship. And when we when we go to the growing areas and that, yeah. my message to them is that I want my kids to be buying coffee off your kids. Mm, nice. And in, we're one of the first um, com- uh, companies to go into fair trade. When fair, fair trade first came out, we were yeah. the trade right there at the, at the coalface with fair trade because we could see some of the problems. Right, yeah. But fair trade is a Western model. It's a Western, like a, a fair trade is, is, is a Western system. So you take a, a Western system, a Western philosophy or, or system that's built or initiated in London or somewhere like that, and you take it down into the, down into the valleys of Bolivia or Cuba or, well, for, for, for instance, we deal with Cuba. Cuba's right outside the fair yeah. trade. You can't even have fair trade in Cuba because Cuba's got its own issues going on. Yeah. But so what I what, – to go along short of when I – so we really, we really were at the – at the forefront of fair trade, we still are fair. We're still one of the fair trade licensed importers and uh, with coffee imports and licensed fair trade reseller with Havana Coffee Works. Right. So we do we do do fair trade if people do want fair trade. And Jeff is wearing his nice fair trade. I am badge actually. I, I didn't yeah. even know. Yeah, yeah, yeah I am. Yeah, I, yeah, so I, but, but I so I am I am, am an advocate for fair trade. But when you go, when you actually work in coffee, like I do, and you actually go to the places mm. that they grow coffee in Peru or in Vanuatu or in Bolivia or Cuba, and you talk to the people, because I've got relationships with people I've been working for a long time, you might go into a growing area and see 
you might be you know, t- 10 or 15 farms and you actually will talk to some farmers that can't afford to get registered for fair trade right. or they can't so they're ostracised and stuff like that so there's that so there's areas where fair trade doesn't work like that and also the fair trade is how I run how we run our business is first it's got to be good First, it's got to be good. Yeah. Then it's got to be you know, ethically right or ethically traded. So we're not we're not going for the first. It's got to be ethically traded, and then it's got to be good. We go for first. It's got to be good. Nice. Because it's about if it's no. Because in the early days of fair trade, a lot of the coffee was undrinkable. Yes. You know, <laughs> fair trade's all done on a on a price over the New York Sea. So coffee's an internationally traded commodity. And there's a New York Sea, so it's all done on the futures market. So there's a lot of white collar crime and everything. Where there's guys sitting in, in New York w- playing on the futures market, so it's all done on a price. I think today's price is dollar ninety a pound US. I, th- I think roughly today, haven't right. today, but it was on Friday. And um, and then the fair trade has a premium over that that they say, which is what. So whatever the New York Sea is, is a premium and fair trade a premium over that. And it means it's basically so that the farmers or the fair trade people can afford education and, and all sorts of stuff like that. That they that they need to grow coffee. And they've got to be they've got to be a sustainable level. They can live, educate their kids, grow yeah. their farms, put money back in. Right? Well, same with the, the fair trade's. A, it's a brand on its own. It's, it's they're, they're, how much of the money goes to the farmer. A lot of it goes to the fair trade organisation as well to manage it. To manage yeah. it. So you've got to remember it's its own brand. They make out they're like they're, 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 you know they're the number one law sort of. But did it have it in place perhaps and not at all? Pay for, yeah. Oh, you know, no. Yeah. I'm definitely into it. Like fair trade's wonderful. It's done great things yeah. for especially. It wasn't in New Zealand. It's not so important because of the level we're talking about coffee. It's, uh, we're actually dealing in a much higher level of coffee. But yeah. if you go to places like in Europe and that where they're, where they're using shit coffee and paying no money mm. for it, then fair trade's really important. So no. So how real trade works? Real trade. So same thing. We go in. We go in and we say to the farmers. We love your coffee. We want to buy your coffee. How much money do you need for your to, to grow your coffee? And they, they, they so they obviously they, the number one is they want to be higher than fair trade, but there's no they don't there's no we're not asking for any certification. We're not asking when uh, the money's going straight to them. So like if we've got it, say I'm going into a, an organisation or a family or a cooperative in Bolivia and saying right we want to buy your coffee. How much you want for it? And they go, well, there's a there's, there's, there's fair trade prices, this, then there's an organic premium, and then we need this. Right. So we we'll agree, if the quality's there, we'll agree on buying the coffee for that much, and that they get the total amount. It doesn't, there's no levies going, it goes straight from real trade, it goes from coffee imports, which is real right. trade, it goes straight to the organisation, it's all transparent. So there's, they don't lose the 6% doesn't go back to someone, and they don't lose this, and they don't have to have any certification because it costs more money for them to have to get their coffee certified for fair trade and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So. Fair trade's quite a funny one too, because fair trade, like say fair trade coffee, what, if you really want to throw someone thing about fair trade, a container of coffee can come in, and there's 300 bags in it, and you could unload the container, and I could say, yeah, that 150 bags is fair trade, and that 150 bags is not, and it's the same coffee, but what it is is there's been levies paid on it, there's been no levies paid on it. Right. So it's quite a. There's a lot of you know, yeah. and so what, and a lot of people are disillusioned with fair trade. Like, so we were. In my disillusionment with fair trade, I, we went for real trade. So it was yep. transparent. This is us, and this, you know, we'll stand by. And re- when I talk about real, I mean right from the grower to the person drinking the coffee. When I talk about real, you know, the whole. And and real is actually physically dealing with them, actually talking to them, having a relationship with yep. them, coming back next year. Sit, sit, like, so last time we were, I was in Bolivia a couple of months ago, just before Christmas, and sitting around the table with them, having a big meal. We always have a meal together when we go to spend yep. some time with the cooperatives. A couple of cooperatives come together. I'm saying, what are your struggles? What you know? What do you do on Christmas? You know, what do you do on Christmas? Oh, we just play with the kids and we have some fruit. So, so is that what you do? That's what they do. We have the day off work, and we, so so so. This Christmas, they all got like bloody Christmas cakes and toys for the kids, and we just 
one of those things where we just wanted to give the, just the families we're working with just a bit of a treat. So we got, if you actually go by look at our Facebook page, there's all these little yeah. kids with Christmas cold and Christmas cakes and toys and all this stuff. And it's real. I mean, it's real. It's a real instance. It's not just like giving some poor small money and it going into through an office in, the, in England with the short hair and the dangly earrings and then going back down to the. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's what, that's what real trade is. And you'll find now, you'll see a lot of. And also, a lot of coffee companies that were in fair trade now are pulled out because they realise that they do have to pay the levies. That they get, that there's all these costs that they do have to pay, and I don't mind paying those. I mean, we, we still do pay our fair trade levies and everything like that. But if you actually look around, a lot of coffee companies that actually were fair trade, actually now they're either direct trade or they're, uh, there's, there's, some, there's lots of different names right. like fair trade. Was there a heyday for you personally in this journey? I think it is now, actually. It is what, now. What, what do you mean, yes. heyday? What, what do you mean by oh, heyday? Yeah, just where you know you feel like everything's exciting and maybe coming to fruition. Or uh, just... The whole time, the whole time's just been a right. roller coaster. It's just you know, like I love it. I still love it. Like, yeah, I'm still right now, still just in the thick of it. Like you know, we saw that we're heaps. Of, <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> we're busier now than we've yeah. ever been. It's amazing. It is amazing. It is amazing how busy we are. Like, I mean, we yeah. we process over five tons of coffee a week now. Now, which is a lot of coffee, and you think there's a lot of coffee companies out there. That's right. <laughs> what about? Have you ever felt like it's got out of control? Like totally, all the time, all the time. <laughs> all the time. That's what I love about it. <laughs> I think coffee is like that, though. They reckon yeah. that coffee's coffee's like the same. The, the emotion that that coffee triggers. It's apparently like, so if you're sitting in a room, if we're sitting in a room right now like this, and if the window, say a window got smashed, they get to me, the window getting smashed yeah. again, that, <gasps> like that, that's the coffee, that's the emotion that the, and the nerves that the, tr- that the coffee's working on as well. Someone told me about a thing about a spider. Have you heard about the spider web? No. So they injected all these spiders with caffeine. This is quite a few years ago. They did this in some laboratory thing they were doing. And they, and the, or they're not all of them. They gave some spiders they didn't give anything to, and some they gave caffeine to. And the spider that, the spiders they gave caffeine to did, did the web about three times faster, but it was not. As much more red, it wasn't a perfect spider web, but it was done three times faster. <laughs> Why do you think Wellingtonians have really grabbed the coffee culture and and just embraced it? Because it's the only fucking warm thing we've got. <laughs> That's, I think that is it. I think that is. I think I'm without. I think. Well, I mean, Wellington is the coffee capital of New Zealand. Yeah. I think it definitely is weather related. That, that, you know, right. that, that we've got this shitty. We live in this really. And I don't know just about coffee. I think that's why Wellington is such a magic place. That we, because we live in such a harsh environment, and it is harsh. And you don't you don't realise when you're living here. But when you go away to Europe or or the Med or Caribbean or wherever, which I do a lot just with my work and sailing, is you, you come back and you just like I come back and it's that I'll, I'll go to like I might be away for five or six weeks and it's beautiful, beautiful weather and there's no wind and everything. I come back and I'll go to sleep and normally arrive at night and twenty. And I wake up in the morning and the wind is at my door at my at my window blowing and I just go oh like that. It's like an assault. It, 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 it is, it is, and, and yeah. I, I'm just getting more and more over it. The thing is, being a Saturday, I think I'd love yeah, the wind, but yeah. but um, I think and I think that's what makes. All the creativity and all the magicness. I mean, like the thing is, that it doesn't matter. Things don't really get cancelled because of weather much in Wellington. I mean, even <laughs> if the weather's pretty bad, I mean, the, the tent can blow down the street, the rain can rain. You know, people don't worry about it raining on your parade in Wellington, eh? Yeah. So I think I think that's what. Yeah, not just coffee, but I think that's what makes Wellington so the magic, the magic place that it is. is I think it's because we're quite hardy. What do you think we should work hard to hold on to in this city? Shit, that's a hard one. Like I said, I've been I've been really negative about the bureaucracy of the city for a long time. Mm. You know, 
Um, what kind of? I mean, think, just think, just things like that. You know, like that whole you get me started on the on the carnival or the festival, or whatever. That's uh, this whole thing of, you know, like whenever whenever they want to, you know, chop a street off or put a road for or put a motorway for, it always just happens, right? So then we we want we want to have a, a festival or we'll, we want to have a carnival, what they're calling it a festival. So obviously we want to close the street off so we can get rid of the cars for a day. It's, oh, no, we can't do that. That's the highway one. That's the highway one. I'm going bullshit. If it was any other thing they wanted to close it, well, I mean, look at the, that, what do they call it up there, the bypass. Yeah. They've had us ransom for years on it. I mean, even right now, I mean, it'd be so easy for them to just close the, close the streets for 24 hours if they wanted to, but they don't want to. So I think that, yeah, people are, the people are definitely getting uh, third-rate citizens, yeah. Looking at what you've achieved, is there anything that you're personally really, really proud of? Doesn't I uh, just well probably just uh, pr- probably uh, shaping the coffee culture in New Zealand is today. Yeah, but yeah. bringing it probably bringing it down here, making it accessible. A lot of people ask me when I'm going to run for mayor. Yes, we want to, we want a bit about that. Do you think you might? This, uh, is, this is a rumor. This is a rumor going around. Well, I did get second worst dresser in Wellington once <laughs> after Des Britain, so I thought I'm on the right track. They said I dressed like a hippie gay biker on acid. Um, the uh, me, I don't think me. I don't really want to be opening play centres and stuff like that. I don't think. Yeah, I think that. I think I'd like to help make some change, but I don't think I need to be the mayor to make change. I think you can yeah. you can do it from any seat you're sitting in. There. I mean, anyone can jump up and heckle and shout and jump up and down. And and the mayor's basically a puppet. I thought I'd rather be pulling strings than being the puppet. What kind of change would you like to help implement then? Just more anarchy, really. Just more. I think there should be free days that you know anything goes. Yeah. Like one day a month or something where you can you At know clothing optional and drugs if you want and. As Kerry would say when she was me, I think we should have some ice skating. (laughs) Let's have lashings of ice skating. So you have been able to see a different way of living, experiencing, you know, seeing socialism in Cuba. Do you see that there's a shift that we need to make now as a society that would help us work closer together? I really, I tell what I do really like. I tell what I do. I do what really like when I travel into big cities. I do like the the attitude of people in big cities like L.A. and New York, and to use and in London, mm. the sort of anything goes attitude of that. I think is much more, you know, less judgmental too. Right. Like that sort of feeling you get that there's a lot of pessimism in New Zealand. The tall poppy syndrome in New Zealand is a really. I mean, you've got to be quiet that you're doing well. You know, you can't, you can't sort of. You know what I mean? You yeah, got, yeah, people totally don't celebrate totally. it. People are like, oh man, you're doing really well. It's like, oh yeah, you're, oh, yeah, you're doing well. You're a wanker. Then you must have ripped some people off to get where you're going, or you know that sort of stuff. I, yep. I don't like that about it. And so you can't really celebrate your. No. You've got to keep it quiet. Jeff, you were lucky. You were destined, fortuitous, serendipitous to you know create the coffee culture in Wellington and throughout New Zealand. But looking back, if you didn't do coffee, what would you be? What would you do now? Well, I always wanted to be an actor, really. <laughs> no, I did. Acting was something I always wanted to do. And um, and I have done a bit of TV stuff. I don't remember. Do you remember when I did the money game? Yeah. That, that was quite funny. So that was a bit of a laugh. The, the CD I did with all the different noise. That sold in 16 countries, that CD. Acting was something I re- did really want to do. And um, I'm thinking maybe about getting out of the coffee business quite soon. To go and try something else, to yep. go, you know, because I do, because I have been there twenty five years, and people say you've done really well, and we have done really well. But like I say, I've, I've, I don't know if I want to spend my whole like you know, I went fishing and then fashion and then coffee. I think I would like to try something else. And I've got, a, I am involved in a couple of other businesses as well. But, but the coffee business has been great and everything, and, and it's been a lot of fun. It's still a lot of fun, and I and I love yeah. going. I love getting up to work. I don't. There's not many days I go. Oh, I don't want to go to work. I get you know, I go to work because I love it. 
and my staff say they really miss me when I'm not there as well. So I don't know if they're telling the truth. Must or not, be but, but they do. They go. They, yeah, they go. Oh, it's so quiet without you. And when are you coming home? You've been gone too long. And they, they, my my wife and family say that too. So that so there is that thing where I feel like I don't. I, the success might have been trapped me to uh, the potentials. Yeah. Well, since I've been in coffee and that, and I've been watching all these people getting into um, social media, and not, not that I'm on Facebook or anything because I'm too busy, but all of the um, software as a service things and things like Zero and Trade Me and all these things. That I, so I, I've, I have got involved in a cloud-based um, company as well, which is which is a SaaS business, which is software as a service. Yeah. And it's HR because I think one of the biggest problems mm. we have in in uh, at the moment, especially these days with right. the new people coming in, is um, HR. Is is the, the, like a lot of the I think with these what I'm finding as well with because I've had lots of staff for years and years. I've employed hundreds of people over the years, and I, I have a staff of about twenty at the moment. But I'm finding that the new people coming through, the new I don't know what generation they're called, but they come through and they've all got an iPad, they've all got an iPhone, and they sort of turn up at work. And they, I've got some great staff. I'm not knocking yeah. my staff. But I've, I've had, we have had problems with people coming through, and they, they come through and they sort of arrive, and they, they sort of say, okay, we, you start with packing coffee and then delivering coffee, and then you make coffee, and then you can work in the lab, or you can be sales of yeah. coffee or training, or there's lots of different, or we can travel to Origins. Or, but they sort of see me sitting in the upstairs in the desk, and they think, wait a minute, I've been here a week. How come he's sitting up there drinking rum, and I'm still down here? I, wanna, I want that job. And I go, well, <laughs> he's been here 25 years. He owns the company. Like, But yeah, it is actually a real issue. And I, and I really am, you know, it does, I am disillusioned by it. And, and that's why I think HR is going to be one of our biggest problems mm. with, with, I mean, it's probably always been a problem. But And so I've got involved with a, a cloud-based company, which is an HR company called My HR. Right. And uh, we're, t- we're looking at taking that global because we think HR is going to be an international problem. Yeah. So that's been going really well. We've grown as fast as zero in the first year, and we're looking at going, uh, probably listing it next year and that's taking great, it as well. So that's, that's something which is just, that's another little passion because HR is a passion. Yeah. But also having something which is cloud based, trying to keep up with what's going on, which is quite interesting. Mm. And another one which I'm involved in too, which is quite ironic, being in the coffee business, is one of the biggest problems in the world is sleep. People yes. don't sleep. <laughs> So because they drink too they much. Drink, well, they do all sorts of stuff. <laughs> they, they do all sorts. It's the way we live. I mean, but it's, it's our anxiety. It's, it's, yeah, it's a, well, I think it's another thing. It's like all these these smartphones and that. They've, I mean, I've never worked so hard as I work now. Yeah. You know, like so. You think these supposed to be all these tools that we're supposed to have that make us so it gives us more freedom, right? But I'll wake up in the morning. I'll check my emails and have breakfast and that, and then I go to work and I work all day, and then I go home and have dinner and that, and then I'm checking my emails, emails and before yeah. I go to bed. And sometimes if my one of my devices is near the, the bed, which I don't try. I mean, talking about my those devices, yes. not those devices, yes. not devices from device. But if one of those devices is next to the bed, I will hear it ping or something in the middle of the night. And I don't actually, I actually don't have them in the bedroom because I hate that sort of stuff. But that, so I, I'm finding that as that as that as does actually as t- robbing us of our time. But anyway, so I'm involved with a company called Sleep Drops, which is a natural product, which is a natural sleep product, ah. which is. Um, so that uh, that's been getting some great international traction as well. So watch out. So from the man wake up, go coffee. to sleep. Wake up, go to sleep. Yeah. So Jeff, you're about to launch the book, Coffee Revolutionary, yes, telling your a, story. Yes, yeah, it's very a no exciting. no holes barred story of the coffee revolution in New Zealand. Well, you got part of it there, ladies and gentlemen, and that is going to be a great read. Jeffrey Marslin, thank you so much for coming and sharing with us on B Side Stories on Access Radio. Wicked.